Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Before we get into this week's episode, we wanted to let you know that our course on a theology of the sexes, taught by Alistair Roberts and Peter Lightheart, is now on our website. If you go to theopolisinstitute.com and go under Media and head to Listen, you'll be able to find the course right there, or I've put a link to the course in the show notes. In this episode of the podcast, Peter Lightheart is going to discuss the text for the fourth Sunday in the season of Easter. We really hope that you're sharpened by these observations on these passages, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Today we're discussing the readings for the fourth Sunday of the Easter season in 2018. Uh, That's April 22nd, 2018. And the readings for this Sunday are Acts 4, verses 1 through 12. Uh, We're reading sections of Acts instead of having an Old Testament reading through this season. Uh, The epistle reading is 1 John 3, verses 16 through 24. And the gospel reading is John 10, verses 11 through 18. The uh, Acts reading and the First John reading are both uh, immediately following the readings that we discussed last week. Uh, last week we talked about uh, Acts 3 and about Peter and John's healing of the lame man in the temple. Uh, they're carrying out the ministry of Jesus, what Jesus began to do. They're carrying on in the power of the Spirit of Jesus. They're proclaiming the resurrection. Uh, and in chapter 4, uh, we see the aftermath of that incident and particularly the opposition that the temple leaders mount to the apostles in their attempt to suppress the preaching of Jesus. And this fits into a large theme of Acts. Uh, Acts is uh, about the continuation of Jesus' work through the apostles by his spirit. But part of that work is to conform the uh, apostles to uh, to Jesus Christ, to make them Christ-like. When we think about that and hear about that, we often think in moral terms. We become Christ-like when we exhibit Christ-like virtues, when the fruits of the Spirit are produced in us, when we uh, exhibit some of the virtues that are listed in the Beatitudes. Uh, And that is genuinely Christ-likeness. I don't want to minimize or deny that. But in Acts, it's not just the uh, virtues that the apostles exhibit, but it's their life stories that are conformed to the life story of Christ. Over and over again, we see that uh, the, uh, the biography of leading figures in the book of Acts follow the st- stages of Jesus' own life. That's certainly true for Stephen. Stephen is conformed by the Spirit. He does miracles by the Spirit. He preaches boldly by the Spirit of Jesus. Uh, some of the descriptions of his ministry resemble things that Luke has said about Jesus in his gospel. And then, of course, uh, Stephen is put to death. Uh, he dies witnessing to Jesus and his last words, uh, Father, forgive them, they know what, know not what they do, into the hands that come in my spirit, are words that Jesus says from the cross. And Stephen's ministry and also his death are conformed to uh, the ministry and death of Jesus. Uh, in Acts 12, Peter goes through a whole series of events that resemble the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, In Peter's case, it's an imprisonment and and miraculous release, but the steps of that that story are um, following the the gospel story of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
Then the big example in the book of Acts is Paul, who uh, in dozens of details is following in the footsteps of Jesus. Uh, He's suffering some of the same opposition from the same people. He's tried by the same courts. Uh, He is uh, sentenced in the same way. Uh, And uh, uh, all the way through, Paul is uh, reliving the life of Jesus. And that uh, one of the early examples of that is here in Acts 4 in our reading for this uh, fourth Sunday of the Easter season, uh, where uh, Peter and John, having done a good work, uh, releasing this man from a from his uh, physical from his physical uh, debility, um, are have to face the priests, the captain of the guard, the Sadducees. Uh, they're arrested and they're called in, and they have to give an account of themselves before the temple authorities. Uh, just as Jesus was opposed by these same people, by the same uh, uh, not only the same. Uh, uh, group of people, but by some of the very same identical people. Annas and Caiaphas are there, Acts 4-6, uh, who were there in Jesus' trials before the Sanhedrin. Uh, the apostles are going before the same courts and being uh, tried for the same kinds of things that Jesus was opposed for, uh, for uh, as they think, uh, violating the law, uh, talking down the temple, and so on. Um, and uh, as with Jesus, uh, the apostles see this as an opportunity for witness. Um, every time the apostles find themselves in a new, uh, under arrest in prison, wherever they go, they f- they see that place as a, a place that they're being sent. Uh, they're being deployed. They're not being uh, the the uh, temple authorities are not not actually in in charge of the situation. Jesus is deploying them into a new venue for witness. Uh, and they use the opportunity to proclaim the gospel, which is what Peter does here before the Sanhedrin. Uh, he uh, testifies to the name of Jesus. He quotes from Psalm 118 about the rejected cornerstone or the rejected stone that has become the cornerstone. He uh, confesses that Jesus is the one name in uh, by whom uh, everyone is saved. That's a message that uh, Peter can bring directly to the Sanhedrin. Uh, in the presence of all of the leaders of Israel, because they've arrested him. They've given him the opportunity to make that witness. And that's the way that uh, the rest of the apostles, uh, Peter does this on other occasions, Paul does it regularly in the book of Acts. Every time they're brought in before authorities, they see it as an opportunity to witness to the, uh, particularly to the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the one who the Jews had put to death. What happens in the aftermath, this is beyond the, reading for this week, but what happens in the aftermath is important. Uh, the uh, Sanhedrin recognizes uh, something's happened to these men. They see the confidence of Peter and John, verse 13 says, and they understand that they are uneducated and untrained men. They're not rabbis. Uh, they're not Pharisees like Paul was. They haven't had the training in the Torah, uh, and yet they speak with this boldness, and they have uh, the scriptures at their fingertips. Uh, and the explanation that they come to in verse 13 is that they recognize that they were with Jesus. Uh, being in the presence of Jesus has transformed them. Being in the presence of Jesus and now re- having received the spirit of Jesus has made them new men. Uh, and now they are able to testify boldly before, this, uh, before the council. Um, 
And as we know from the Gospels, this is a this is a dramatic change for the apostles who fled from Jesus when he was arrested. Now they're being arrested instead of trying to get out of it or trying to hedge their bets, trying to uh, trying to instead of uh, kind of um, softening their witness, accommodating the witness to the Sanhedrin, they speak quite boldly and accuse the Jews of putting Jesus to death. Uh, and then, of course, in the aftermath of that, the, when the Sanhedrin continues to tell them to uh, be quiet, Peter answers that uh, uh, they can't be quiet because uh, they must they have to bear uh, true testimony. Jesus has, in fact, been raised, and if they denied that, then they would be bearing false testimony. It would be factually false for them to say that. Um, and they've also been commissioned by Jesus to proclaim this word to proclaim this uh, the resurrection of Jesus uh, so uh, Peter uh, famously says that uh, it's we should obey God rather than men even if the Jewish authorities command them to stop witnessing to the resurrection uh, they will continue to do so because God has commanded them to do so um, so it's this is again like the readings we looked at uh, last week this is a this is an Easter season reading, partly because the resurrection is the message that Peter's proclaiming, but it's also an Easter season reading because uh, the way that Peter and John are behaving now is a result of the resurrection, because Jesus has overcome death, and Jesus has poured out the spirit of resurrection life on them. Uh, they're carrying on the ministry of Jesus, and they have the same boldness that Jesus had. Um, so the, the growth and the ministry of the church is a manifestation of uh, that that the resurrection has taken place it's an it's an outflow of that resurrection the first john passage is also uh, following pretty closely on what we were looking at last week um, last week we looked at first uh, john the first eight verses of first john 3 and the reading for uh, this uh, fourth sunday after easter of the easter season is first uh, john 3 beginning in verse 16 this is picking up on some of the things we discussed last week, the, the, uh, the, the phrase that John is using to describe the disciples, to describe his readers, is that they are children of God. As children of God, they have a resemblance to their father. Uh, and what uh, John focuses on here at the end of chapter 3 is that that means that uh, disciples have to live a life of love. Uh, and for, for John, love of the brothers is not... Uh, optional. It's not like it's. Uh, sometimes we we think we're we think we're being Pauline, and we set this opposition up between faith and love. The really important thing for our salvation is a life of faith and trusting in Jesus, and love is an uh, an outflow of that, more or less necessary. But we're in regardless of whether we love. Uh, I don't think Paul says that. Paul says that the only kind of faith that works is the kind of faith that works through love. Um, it's, if it's not a, a faith that uh, uh, produces love, then it's not, uh, a, it's not a working faith. Uh, it's not operative for, for salvation. And John is using different terms, but he's saying the same thing. Um, love is not optional. Love is a life and death issue, uh, issue for him. Uh, we know that we've passed out of death into life, he says, because we love the brothers. He who does not love abides in death. Uh, death and hatred are set up on the one hand, um, uh, Cain is the great example of uh, uh, a brother who hates. Uh, so death and hatred on the one hand, life and love on the other, 
if we have life in us, if we abide in the life of God, then we will love our brothers. We'll have that kind of family resemblance to our Father who has shown his love for us. Jesus is the great example of this, um, as he is uh, everywhere. Uh, Verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Um, There's going to be, lives are going to be laid down one way or the other, to put a kind of Girardian spin on this, uh, lives are going to be laid down one way or the other. Uh, we can be like Cain, and we can force our brothers to lay their lives down for us. We can make them scapegoats for our benefit. Uh, that's, uh, that's the way of death. To live that way is to abide in death. Uh, and uh, it's, you can't do that and abide in God. You can't, you can't live that way and abide in the life that God is. Uh, The other way to live is by laying down our lives for the sake of our brothers, and we do that in imitation of Jesus, in union with Jesus. Uh, This is how we know love, because we're, uh, we're, uh, by the power of the Spirit, we're being conformed to the love of Christ, and we're imitating the love of Christ in the way that we uh, lay down our lives for our brothers. I think that uh, John is still using Jesus as the example of, for his disciples in verse 17. He's just mentioned that Jesus laid down his life for us. Now he says, whoever has the world's good and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Uh, Little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Um, He doesn't explicitly mention Jesus, uh, but that pattern of uh, having riches that we expend for the sake of a brother in need. Uh, that's exactly the, uh, the movement of, uh, of the, uh, the life history of the eternal son. Uh, the eternal son had equality with God. He didn't think equality with God something to be clung to, uh, but he made himself poor. He who was rich made himself poor so that we might become rich. And that pattern of uh, self-giving, that pattern of laying our lives down uh, for one another is expressed. Uh, Jesus does that. It's expressed in him giving up his wealth so that we might become rich. And then he calls us to do the same, to lay down our lives uh, in part by the way we use our tangible earthly wealth, uh, which is we don't use uh, uh, in a way that uh, harms and kills our brothers, but we use it in a way that uh, enhances their lives, life and uh, and blesses them. And, and is that's that's the life that God has called us to. That's the life that is in Jesus. Um, one of the results of this, John says, is that we live lives of assurance. Um, assurance is a big theme in John's, John's gospel, and I think sometimes gets distorted because it uh, gets uh, turned into what I think is a, a misleading kind of syllogism, so it, it, and it involves self-examination. You ask yourself, uh, am I... Am I loving? Uh, if I'm loving, that must mean I'm abiding in life and I'm abiding in the truth. Therefore, I must be in good standing with God. So the, the syllogism is using your own experience and your own, your own conduct as one of the premises of the, of the syllogism. Uh, and I, think, I don't think that's the way that uh, John intends us to think about this. We're to be assured not by kind of stepping out of ourselves and examining ourselves from the outside, but I think that assurance comes as we live in love. Uh, we know that we are of the truth uh, because 
uh, we don't love in word or tongue, but indeed in truth. That's not saying that we're testing ourselves, but rather that by living, uh, by loving not in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth, living that way is what gives us assurance that we're, uh, gives us the experience of assurance that we're walking in the truth. Uh, it's not a it's not a syllogism. Again, the uh, the practical syllogism idea kind of takes the person outside himself to judge himself from the outside. I think it's as we're in the course of obedience, uh, we're assured that we are abiding in the truth. In the course of our obedience, we're assured that uh, uh, God approves our works and God is, will not condemn us. Part of this too, uh, John goes on to say in the latter part of this chapter, is confidence in prayer. Um, uh, we have confidence in prayer as we walk in love. Uh, we have confidence before God as we walk in love. And we have confidence that whatever we ask of the Father, he'll give us as we walk in love. And again, that's not, that's not the result of a syllogism. It's a result of the actual practice of walking in love. If we're doing that, then we have assurance um, uh, and confidence in prayer. And if we don't have confidence in prayer, then uh, what John would uh uh, teach us what John how John would exhort us uh, to uh, walk in love, <laughs> and then we'll uh, then we'll begin to be uh, confident and uh, hopeful in our prayers. Well, one last note on this passage: a wonderful verse in uh, it's a very uh, very common um, you know a well known verse in verse twenty. I'll back up to verse 19. We know, that the, we know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our hearts uh, and knows all things. Our hearts are full of, uh, often of self-righteousness and pride, but just as often our hearts are full of self-recrimination and self-accusation, uh, and we fool ourselves into thinking that the latter is more pious than the former. Uh, our heart, when we have proud hearts, then we think, you know, something's really wrong with us. But when we have hearts that condemn us, then we think that we're really being righteous. Um, but both of those are acts of unbelief. <laughs> on the one hand, we're, there's an act of unbelief because we're confident in our own performance. On the other hand, it's an act of unbelief because we, uh, we don't really believe that God is greater than our hearts. Uh, it's God's word and God's promise that uh, determines our standing and not whether we feel condemned or not, uh, whether our uh, our hearts accuse us or not or condemn us or not. That's not the final judge. Our hearts are not our final judge. God is. And we assure ourselves by walking in love and assure ourselves of God's promise uh, and especially of the fact that God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. Uh, the final passage is um, John 10 which is the part of the Good Shepherd Discourse. And the Good Shepherd Discourse is in turn part of the, uh, uh, part of the passage that begins with the healing of the man born blind. Uh, all of chapter 9 is about that episode, but uh, there's no scene change when Jesus begins to talk about thieves and robbers and hirelings and talks about himself as a good shepherd. He's still in the same context, same setting. He's standing right in front of the Pharisees, who have condemned him for healing the man on the Sabbath day. Uh, and he's speaking directly to them about their failings as shepherds of Israel. 
Um, so that that uh, uh, that context is important for getting, capturing some of the drama of the passage, because uh, Jesus is not talking about absent. Uh, uh, He's not talking about people who are absent from the scene. He's talking directly to the people who, whom he's confronting and condemning. Um, and Jesus, Jesus, of course, com, uh, uh, describes himself as the good shepherd. Uh, shepherding in the Bible is kingship. It's, um, it's guarding and uh, guiding and protective, as Jesus goes on uh, to say in this passage. Uh, kings are the shepherds of Israel. Kings are the shepherds of the people. Um, and uh, Jesus describes his actions as the good shepherd as uh, uh, he, he shows himself to be the good shepherd primarily by being willing to give himself, himself and his life for the sheep uh, a good shepherd is one who lays down his life for the sheep a hireling is one who uh, doesn't care enough about the sheep to lay down his life who uh, sees danger coming and runs away uh, but uh, the good shepherd uh, knows the sheep, he loves the sheep, the sheep are his, uh, and so he's willing to give his life for them. Part of this is a statement as Jesus is teaching about his death and resurrection. My life is not taken from me, he says. It might look like I become passive when I go to the cross, but uh, that passivity is uh, uh, actually a, uh, a great act of laying down my life. He delivers himself over to death. And having delivered himself over to death, he can take up his life again. He has the power to lay it down. He has the power to take it up again. Uh, he doesn't come under the control of those who put him to death. Um, but um, so that's the, in, insofar as this is a, a Easter season passage. That's part of the message that Jesus has that sovereign power to take up his own life. Um, but also, it's a I think it's a really important passage for understanding the character of pastoral care um, in uh, um, in our age uh, pastoral ministry has become just another kind of uh, caring profession it's about uh, it has it's a soft profession uh, it's about uh, nurturing and soothing um, Jesus doesn't see it that way uh, Jesus sees it as a militant vocation uh, because it's a royal vocation, because a shepherd is a king, um, and it's a vocation that requires courage, uh, it's a vocation that requires uh, self-sacrifice. Uh, Jesus, saw, again, sacrifices himself to the point of death, and there are many examples of shepherds, good shepherds throughout the history of the church who have been willing to give themselves for the sake of their sheep, who have been willing to sacrifice themselves for their people. And that's what Jesus is calling uh, his, uh, the shepherds who shepherd under him. That's the kind of life he calls them to. Uh, I think th this is a point that uh, Alistair Roberts, uh, uh, I thought, made very effectively during our recent course on the theology of the sexes. Um, that uh, this is, I think, one of the reasons why the, the question of uh, women's ordination, a male-only uh, liturgical priesthood, uh, why that's difficult to make sense of in our day. Uh, if if uh, pastoral care is a matter of nurturing, then it seems like, you know, women are better suited than that than men are. Why not ordained women? But if pastoral care is uh, 
more like being in the army <laughs> than it is like nursing a child or raising a child, then it makes sense for uh, the Lord to call men and to reserve that position for men, just as you know, men are designed uh, by God to fight, to protect. Uh, they're, they're called by God to have a certain role of protection from the time, you know, from, the, from Eden on. It's been uh, the priests, the men who have been at the gate uh, to uh, prevent serpents from coming in, to prevent uh, defilements from coming into the tabernacle, so that life can flourish within the boundaries that they protect. Uh, when, you put, when you put pastoral care in those kind of terms, the terms that Jesus is using, then a male priesthood, a male leadership in the, in the church makes a lot more sense, in the same way that a male uh, uh, an all-male army makes more sense. They're the same kind of activity, the same kind of guarding and protecting activity. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.